Bibles this morning and go to John chapter 13. John 13, we'll be looking at verses 34 and 35. This is part of our series on the habits of grace, things that should be descriptors or things that are marks of a body that is walking after Christ. Uh, We're focusing on a foundational element of what it means to be a body, how Christ has defined how we're to live amongst one another. Because of the snow uh, a couple of weeks ago, we actually have one more sermon in this series next week. We'll be talking about the ordinances, the picture made visible um, through the ordinances of the gospel. We're going to be focusing on that. John 13 will be in our text in just a moment. There's probably not much disagreement among us that current events are making relationships with those outside of our immediate family more difficult and more challenging. In our current cultural climate, for many reasons, we have, as a society, withdrawn from each other. I think we can all at least recognize that within our society, but maybe we even feel it in our own personal relationships. According to one article I read this week in 2020, the average American traded 300 hours of in-person time with friends, church members, and neighbors for 300 more hours of social media, TV, and internet reading. What do you think that will do to our relationships? And this all comes after the U.S. Surgeon General called loneliness our great national epidemic in 2017. The problem has just gotten worse. It's easy for our witness as God's people to be dimmed by a natural tendency to focus on ourselves. And this is being aggravated by our current cultural circumstances. Now, we have plenty of excuses as to why we should focus on ourselves right now. There's plenty of things that, we come, that come to our mind and we say, well, I, I need to be isolated for these reasons. We focus on our own needs and our own desires. One theologian writes, even as Christians, we still have a sin nature and therefore we gravitate toward our own little circle of in people. Those who we consider most compatible with ourselves. Those are the kind of people we look for by nature. People who are like me. Who are easy to talk to. Who I'm attracted to. Because we share things in common. Even though we're called by scripture to love one another. Our flesh still yearns to divide over fleshly characteristics. Like race and culture. Economic status. Age. Common interests. Because we are sinners, we will always be self-focused first and then same-focused. Several years ago, an author named Karen Shepard wrote an article entitled Authentic Fellowship. She was seeking to challenge Christians with this question. How do we learn the deep one another community of Scripture without being in close proximity? This is a question we've wrestled with over the last few years with this pandemic around. 
She writes, many churches have a superficial idea and experience of this idea of community. Christian community is easily mistaken for mere cordiality, courtesy, or sociability. It easily becomes least common denominator fellowship. Not much different from the Kiwanis or neighborhood potluck. Often so-called Christian community is marked by nothing that is specifically Christian and nothing that challenges the values of surrounding pagan society. It's not that different from what the natural man can accomplish with those he already is drawn to, is what she's saying. If Christian love then means nothing more than loving those who are just like you, then our love will be no different than what we see in the world around us. It's not supernatural. It's not defined by Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 46 through 47, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, only those like you, only those that are easy to love, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So the question for evaluation for us this morning, is this what our love for one another looks like in this body, in this church? Does our care and concern for one another affect our feet and our hands? Does our love move us to give our time to brothers and sisters that we had originally planned to spend elsewhere? Is our schedule sovereign? Does your love for others in this body ever affect your wallet? And I mean beyond what you normally plan to give. Let's consider our text this morning. John 13. We'll begin reading back in verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 5 and then skip through the text to get an idea of what it is that Jesus will say. This is God's word to us, his people. Verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So that's the setting. He's about to leave. This is the farewell discourse. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going back to God with all these things in mind, now verse 4, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Skip down now to verse number 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher. And Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Skip down now to our text in verse 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
by this, by this kind of love, all people will know that you are my disciples. You will carry my brand if you have love for one another. Let's ask for God's help as we look at this passage together this morning. Gracious God, we pray that you would open our minds, you would open our hearts to understand the truth of our King's words, that we would seek in the power of Christ through his Spirit to live in the way that he's commanded. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage this morning calls us to love one another. It's a distinct kind of love. It's unique. It's unlike anything we can muster up in our own natural strength. It's unlike anything that we see in this world, even in the most loving of relationships, humanly speaking. You see, Jesus is the model of this kind of love, he says. So our passage this morning is teaching us that because Jesus has loved you sacrificially, you must love other believers in the same manner. Now, John 13 through 17 take place on one evening. This is an extended conversation that we're given insight into. We're given the privilege of hearing that Jesus gives to his disciples. This is the night before he is going to be crucified. It's the last time that he will be together physically in their presence with all of his disciples. So his final words to them now are profoundly significant. They're the things he wants to leave ringing in their ears as he departs from them. In the verse preceding our text, Judas's betrayal has been set in motion already by Christ. We read in the verses just before verses 34 and 35, the glory of God is about to be revealed in the cross through this instrument of death. The disciples then will abandon Jesus and after his resurrection, he will return to heaven. These final instructions then describe what Jesus wants us to look like, his followers, what we're to be marked out by. This morning we'll consider the newness, the depth, and the distinctiveness of Christ's command here. First, the newness of Christ's command. What is this new command? Why does he say it's new? What we first have to understand in what way this is not a new command. It's not new in the sense like nothing like this has ever been commanded in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 6, God's people are told to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Leviticus 19, all the way back in the Pentateuch, they're told to love their neighbors as themselves. This ethic has been set out for God's people since the beginning, since God's people were formed into a nation. Jesus taught later that all the law and the prophets are dependent on these two fundamental commands, love God, love others. So then in what way is this a new command? Notice again the phrase in verse 34. Look back at your scriptures. It begins with the words, just as. Just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. The newness comes from the quality of his love for these men. The immediate context at the beginning of chapter 13 defines what this love looks like. It is sacrificial. It is humble. It is costly. It places another above self. Think of it. Washing a person's feet 
was the unenviable task of the lowest slave in the house. No teacher or rabbi would ever have considered touching the dirty feet of his students. I just want to try to put this in a a maybe modern day parallel. And I'm not even sure we can necessarily connect it. This is just unthinkable. No rabbi would do this. But this might be similar to the Queen of England or the President or someone like Jeff Bezos offering to come to your house and scrub your kitchen floor on his hands and knees or cleaning your bathrooms for you. It's not that the job does not need to be done, but that the station or position of that person makes it unfathomable. They just don't do that kind of work. And yet, the King of kings, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who will rule and reign for all eternity, puts a towel on and he washes his betrayer's feet. He came not to be served, but to serve. He's cleaning the filthy feet of men who will deny him who will run away from him, who will abandon him, including Judas. That's the context. Do you see how supernatural his love is for his followers? Do you see what it's like? He has every right to refuse to serve these men. He can find another way to take care of this need. It's not even like he has to ignore the issue. But he says, I will do it. That's not beneath me. He could have just moved past this task as his disciples did. None of them washed his feet. And yet he does in great humility. He serves them in the most distasteful of tasks. He takes the place of a slave to serve those who are truly and rightfully beneath him. Now, perhaps this has already crossed your mind this morning as we begin to think of this command for us, but how do you command someone to love? We need to think about our idea, our concept of love. In our culture, love is primarily associated with a feeling. How do you command a feeling? You know, we have great affection for our family. We even have strong affection for maybe a family pet. But what kind of love is truly being described here? Is Jesus just showing warm feelings toward his disciples? Christ-like love is defined by action very often in spite of our feelings. To love your enemy is not to feel warm and fuzzy toward them. This is supernatural love that Jesus demonstrates that chooses to act for the good of another. Biblical love, though, is not void of emotion or affection, but that's not its primary trait. It is primarily a choice demonstrated by action. Why does Jesus have to command us to love? Have you considered that? Why does he have to make this a command? What is that telling us? The command assumes that at times it won't be easy or natural for us to love each other, right? He wouldn't have to command it if we do this on our own. 
This specific one another command is given more than any of the other one another commands throughout the New Testament. And just remember, think of how many of the one another commands then flow out of this one. This truly is the foundational command of all the other one another's that are built on top of it. He commands us to love because this one regulates our affections and our behavior. It tells our emotions, our feelings, our behavior, our actions to get in line with his love for us. We're to receive this as a command to every single follower of Christ. You're to hear this personally. This is the new commandment for you. You're to love those who follow Christ the way that he has loved you. It's a command for you this morning. Secondly, we see the depth of Christ's command. Not only the newness of his command, but the depth. We'll see this in three specific ways. The measure of our love. You may be thinking that it is hard to tell the difference between a Christian's love and the love of other religious people. We need to understand what kind of love, what it looks like, what it, what it acts like. At times it seems like people outside of the Christian community are maybe more loving than most Christians. Isn't that a common accusation? Unfortunately, at times, it's true of us. Those without Christ can love their families, their friends, their neighbors, their communities in very deep and significant, even sacrificial ways. But only Christians can truly understand the nature of Christ-like love like this. You see, our love is to be measured according to Christ's standards set for us. He died for us while still sinners. One might die for a loved one, but who dies for their enemy? One pastor notes, a million men and women fallen on the battlefield in sacrifice for their countries, as heroic and noble a sacrifice as that is, does not begin to compare to the crimson blood of Christ spilled on a solitary cross for the sins of all mankind when they were not seeking him. He willingly gives up his life to rescue aliens and strangers and foreigners and enemies. He willingly chooses, knowing what it was to be separated from the love of his father, which he had never experienced in all of eternity. He willingly chose to suffer the holy and horrific wrath of God poured out on all our sins because he loved you and you hated him. You chose against him as a rebel again and again and again. He chose to do that knowing that even after you were his, you would still live for yourself. Do you see the measure of love that we're to measure our love with? John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God. It's not about us but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you see what we're saying? It's not that we muster up love or this feeling or these actions. It's that we reflect it back to him. We recognize how much he loves us and it just bounces off of us and goes out. We can't contain it within ourselves if we truly understand what he's done. Christ's own death for us reveals what God's love looks like. It's selfless. It's sacrificial. It's costly. It's tangible. 
Isn't that why he gives us visible, touchable pictures of the gospel to be reminded of again and again and again? He's saying in these pictures, every time we touch them and see them, I love you. First John 4 then tells us we're to love one another in that same way. This is the kind of love that we're told characterized the early church. Tertullian, an early church father, just a century after this gospel was written, he said that pagans marveled at the love of Christians for one another, especially as they faced sometimes ferocious persecution. They said, see how they love one another? How they are ready even to die for one another. That's supernatural love, isn't it? D.A. Carson comments on this passage saying, The new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, yet profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. Next, we see the motive of our love. We've touched on it already. The hymn, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head, says, Death and the curse were in our cup. O God, was twas full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up. Now blessings are for me. One commentator applies this verse this way, without a prior life-consuming experience of God's love for us, we will be singularly ill-equipped to love anyone else. Do you see where the motive comes from? Do you have a hard time loving others? As you're thinking through this command, this is a huge command, isn't it? Something a toddler can understand But the most mature of Christians struggle with this, to obey it. It's so easy for us to make excuses about our lack of time or the fullness of our schedules or we just don't click with that person. Or if we're we're talking to ourselves in our head and we won't say this out loud, they're just annoying or hard to get along with. I'll find ways to avoid them. Consider the priorities of Jesus He knew his time on this earth was limited. And yet he served those who were in every way beneath him. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Third, the means of our love. Jesus provides not only the measure, the standard for our love, nor just the motive, but also the means, the ability. We cannot manufacture this kind of love on our own. His love for us must be the source of our love for others. It's not based on our abilities. Paul says in Romans 5.5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And at this point, I would agree with you. You might be saying, this is simply impossible. Why even try? I can't love like this. And that's a great place to start. Of course you can't, but it is still a command. And he would not command you to do something he doesn't give you the ability to obey. Perhaps you're you're tempted to give up 
before you even begin or you've failed to love many times before. So why try again? Well, try again because of how much you have been loved and forgiven. Run back to the gospel. Run back to Christ. Rehearse his love for you just as I have loved you. That's important to meditate on. It's a command to obey and we're given the ability to obey it by a spirit. So don't begin trying to love others by just mustering up some feelings. Don't examine your feelings. Don't look within. Don't talk about the problem to yourself. Look at your Christ. Remind yourself of how Christ has loved you and then move forward in action. Choose to love. Choose to serve that person you're struggling with even when you don't feel like it. We cannot love as we've been commanded unless we're continually connected to his love for us. This will wane if you lose sight of the gospel. Our love for each other is not simply an imitation of his love, but a manifestation, again, a reflection of his love for us. And this is what we mean when we say God's presence today. Where is God's presence on the earth today? In the past, it was in the tabernacle, in the temple. It's today in us. That's the witness to the world that he's talking about in verse 35. Where will people of all nations see God's presence on the earth in the church, in the church. And this is perhaps the primary way. So the more you remind yourself of his love for you, the deeper you plunge into the depths of the gospel, the more you stare into the face of Christ, the more you'll be able to love others for whom he died. If you're not doing that, don't be surprised that you're not loving like you're supposed to. Remember the story of the unforgiving servant. Why is he unable to forgive a small debt? We're told in that parable that he did not understand how much he'd truly been forgiven. So again, if Jesus did not expect us to be able to obey this command, he would not have given it. But the fact that he commands us to love means that we can do it in his strength. Third, the distinctiveness now of Christ's command in verse 35. This text tells us that the way we love has incredible significance for how the world sees us. Look again at verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If his people are no different than unbelievers in their conduct, Toward one another, what is unique and special about him? You see what questions this raises? Who is the one called into question? It's not just us, it's him. Isn't he then just another God among other gods? Do you see why it's so important for us to be loving in our marriages? in our families, in our relationships to one another, within a body. The assumption in our world is that everyone is using those around them to one degree or another. 
And Jesus says, this must not be how my people live. They must prove that I am real and powerful to change the human heart by the way they reflect my love through their own lives. And the church is the perfect place to display this because we are sinners. And the more we lean into loving each other, the harder it will become, but the more opportunity to see Christ glorified. Do you see that? It just keeps going in and deeper and the distinctiveness keeps flowing up and out as we obey this command, as we recognize how difficult this is for us naturally. If we don't care about each other, about the lost, if we're unwilling to sacrifice our time, reputation, our comfort, if we fill our lives with the trinkets of this world and we're just like the world, filling our life with 300 more hours of mindless entertainment, sure, that's fine for a break, but is that what we're filling our lives and our priorities with? If it is, our faith looks and sounds like the empty words of every other religion, full of idealistic platitudes, full of moralism, but unable to change anyone. And I want you to know our world can spot the difference. In 2012, Harvard researcher Robert Putnam, author of Bowling Alone and American Grace, he made a significant discovery after he studied this idea of loneliness and where individualism in our country leads to. And he found health in a surprising place. He concluded healthy Christian communities result in a significant increase in kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. Are we surprised that's what he found? Not at all. Those on the outside then are treated with love, dignity, and hospitality, not fear, suspicion, and exclusion. The church has a bad reputation when we disobey our Lord. It's not because the church and the principles here in the Bible don't work. It's because we don't obey them sufficiently. 1 John 3.10 says, By this it is evident or made clear. Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 4, 7, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. It defines who God is. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In this text, Jesus is saying that loving one another confirms that your profession of faith is real. You can't stir that up within yourself to love this way. Do you love the people of God spiritually? One commentator states this in the negative. Lovelessness among believers nullifies their witness to the world and reveals them hypocrites Another theologian, it is a false boast when anyone says that he loves God but neglects his image in others which is before his eyes. Every claim to love God is a delusion if it is not accompanied by unselfish and practical love for our brothers and sisters. What is your love toward others revealing about your heart? Are you being changed by his love for you? Do you even know him? The passage then, we learn today for ourselves, Christ commands us to love others in this body, even as he has loved you. 
One author summarizes, with all our faults, failures, and sins, the presence of other Christians in our lives provides us the opportunity to express our love for God. It's an opportunity. The fact that other Christians surround us is what allows us to make clear that we do love the Lord. Other Christians do not exist to serve us and our happiness or to be merely tolerated despite the inconvenience they sometimes cause. Other Christians exist with us in the church so that we might demonstrate our affection for the Savior by loving them. So how do we do this? I want to give you four practical applications. First, love others by showing up and being consistent. Here's what we promise to one another every time we recite our covenant promises to each other. We will work biblical language. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We will walk, again, biblical language. We will practice continually. We will walk together in Christian love. We will bear the burdens of one another, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. And as occasion may require, and we're saying it will, Faithfully admonish and entreat one another. We will aid one another in sickness and distress, seeking to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy in speech, being slow to take offense and always ready for reconciliation. Do you see how this tells us how we have said we will love one another? There's no shortcut to friendship and community. But then again, nothing worthwhile comes without intentionality and perseverance. If you want close relationships in the body, you have to be here. You have to make time for them. You have to schedule them. You must remember we're created for community. That's where we're headed for, for all eternity. We need each other. Without all sorts of friendships, we suffer personally and our churches will, will struggle. We're seeing that. The Surgeon General's warning of that now. So we need to show up with counter-cultural regularity. Friendships and relationships take time. Therefore, we can conclude with Paul, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves, Romans 12. Put in the time, the love, the honor, and your relationships, they will deepen. Do you know of another way that where that will happen? Are we wiser than our Lord with our time? Number two, take, love others rather by taking the initiative. Love others by taking the initiative. Hospitality is one way we love each other. It's the distinctively Christian practice of creating space for others. It's the Christ-like pattern of opening our lives and our homes to people, whether they're our regular friends or soon-to-be friends. We can grow in this church family. I think this is an area where we need to work at opening our homes. And let me tell you from experience, unless you put it on your calendar, your calendar will fill up. And this will not be the priority it should be. During my time here serving as pastor, I've heard countless people say that they don't feel connected or that people aren't reaching out to them. But where does that fit into this passage? What would this passage counsel us to do when we're feeling like, like that? We've all felt like that at times in the church. 
how would it counsel us? Take the initiative. Those with the deepest connection are always those who take personal initiative. And as Paul commands us, practice hospitality. This means devote time to it. Devote resources. Devote thought to it. Devote your calendar to it. Don't give up because it's taking more time than you thought it would. Be the initiative taker. If there's a group of people and you'd like to talk to them, don't say, well, they're already in conversation. Walk up and be involved. I know that's hard and uncomfortable at times. But what are we seeing here in this command? Only go when you're comfortable. Does that sound like what Jesus is saying? Be the initiative taker. Are you expecting others in the body to do the bulk of the serving? Or are you proactively looking for the needs of others in the church that you can be meeting? When you find out about a need, spiritual or physical, in your life group, in your community group, in, in the life of some other member in our body, is your first thought to pass that on to the leaders, the deacons or the pastors? Somebody else will take care of that because that's what they're here for. No, what Jesus is saying, no, that's what we are here for, right? Certainly your pastors and deacons will help with that. But that isn't first and foremost a leadership job. That's an every member ministry requirement. Christian love is real service, not lip service. How we handle our material possessions in the face of a brother's need, says a lot about our spiritual condition and our love for God. How we regard other Christians in their need says a lot about the authenticity of our love for God. This is where I would commend you as a church family. We see many selfless acts behind the scenes happening over and over and over again as people take meals. But again, I just encourage you, don't let somebody else take that spot. Don't sit back and wait so that you, you don't have to take time out of your schedule. This is a shared responsibility. This is what it means to be the church, genuine Christians with open hearts and open pockets to other Christians in need. Number three, love others who are not like you. Christ-likeness means taking initiative with those most unlike us and seeking their good. Do a thought experiment. What types of relationships do we see in the life of Jesus? We see him investing in the 12 and even more so in three of those 12. Absolute devotion to the closest of his friends. We see him pursuing people outside of the community. Disliked people. He pursued them intentionally. A man like Zacchaeus. We see him conversation with those of other cultures. The Samaritan woman. We see him eating with friends, family members, and outsiders, even being called the friend of sinners in a derogatory way. He attends weddings and funerals and cultural events. And he has relationships with the poor and needy. D.A. Carson says in his book, Love in Hard Places, the church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they've all been saved by Jesus Christ. Perhaps they're even a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake and praise the Lord that he gives us his love 
as we love one another. Finally, love others humbly, patiently, sacrificially. None of us like to be mistreated, excluded, ruled out. But we all have people who are difficult for us to love. And here's where we need to start with our humility. If we're honest with ourselves, we are difficult to love, right? We have annoying habits. We have selfish interests that make relationships hard, right? Perhaps it is exceptionally difficult to bear with people in this church or maybe even in your life group. Maybe everything they do is frustrating to you. But the New Testament would simply say, have patience. Paul wrote it this way in Colossians 3. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Loving one another will require sacrifice. It will cost. If the creator, the king of kings, who has legions of angels at his command, who worship him day and night, can wash the filthy feet of his disciples, don't you think you can serve as an usher? as a children's worker, as a greeter, in any other ministry that needs your help and truly be there to serve in whatever way is needed. Love others by praying for them. Pray through the membership directory on a regular basis. I promise if you are doing that one thing in application, your love for this body will grow. If you're bringing their needs, their spiritual needs, their physical needs before our Father, how can your heart for them not be warmed and drawn to them? So do you love others in a self-sacrificing way? If it doesn't cost you anything, is it really Christ-like love? Only at the cross can we be motivated to love as we've been loved. One current pastor writes, if the gospel of undeserved and unearned love has not changed your heart, you'll have to choose between two inadequate choices. You will either have phony love. You just show up, you're nice toward people you dislike, you know it's just a few minutes each week, and then you're gone. Or it's sporadic love. It's inconsistent kindness when it suits you, when you have time for it. It's toward people you like. But if you're living in the light of Christ's redeeming love, your heart is softened toward all people like his was. And your service and love becomes more and more and more sincere. You will love as you've been loved. 1 John 4, 10 and 11. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, beloved, if God loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray. Our gracious King in heaven, we have seen a command that is immensely difficult for us. 
Lord, we confess it is even more than difficult. It is impossible for us in our own natural ability and strength. It is impossible for us to sacrifice for people that at times we don't like and we just don't do it. But Lord, all of this is revealing something about how we view your love for us. As we bask in your love, as we meditate and consider and look deeply at your love demonstrated to us on the cross, through your resurrection, through our living high priest who always intercedes for us, if we reflect on his love for us, we will be willing to sacrifice. It will begin to change our hearts. It will help us to take and choose the right actions. And as we obey in our actions, it will begin to change our feelings as well. Lord, we want to obey, but we need your help. This is a big ask. This is a hard command. Help us to be honest about it. Help us to take it seriously. Help us to recognize what it is you're commanding us. And by your grace, obey. In Jesus' name, amen.